Revelation chapter 2. Please open up to the second chapter of Revelation. The plan was to finish this chapter tonight, but we're not going to do that. Not going to be able to do that. It's going to take one more week. Not next week because I have a conference to attend next week. So the week after that, we'll finish up Revelation chapter 2. But the passage that we're dealing with, we're going to read the whole thing in one section, in, in one sitting, because it is um, all dealing with one specific topic. This is the message to the church in Thyatira. Now, that's how I'm saying it. That may or may not be right. You could expect that with me by now already. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's exactly how you say it, Thyatira. That's what I'm going with. Um, you'll see with this passage, it has a lot in common with the address to Pergamum and actually Ephesus too. And we should expect that at some level by now because one of the things that we've noticed and been saying is that the specific messages or the specific addresses to these seven churches are all encompassing of the congregations. There's a universality or commonality with the exhortations and the warnings for every church that exists within this age between Jesus' first and second coming. So tonight in view, we have this message for the church in Thyatira. And again, it's, a, it's, it's too much for us to deal with in one night. So we're going to deal with half of it this evening and then the rest, the second half, not next week, but the week after that. So let's read our passage and then we'll pray asking God's blessing in his word. So this is the word of God beginning at verse 18 in chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need you, and we are grateful that you are all-wise and all-powerful, that you are greater than anything that is in this world, uh, that you know all things. And we pray, Lord, that you would impart to us wisdom and discernment, that you would help us to have knowledge, and that you would give us a increased faith, leading to an increased love for you, a desire to obey you, a desire to glorify you. Lord, please bless our time in your word this evening. Help us, God, to rightly understand it and to exalt Christ and the gospel by which uh, we are saved. We know that we have no hope of salvation apart from your grace, Lord. And so help us, God, to rightly understand all things for your glory's sake. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So out of the seven addresses to the churches that we find in Revelation 2 and 3, 
this section addressed to the church in Thyatira is the longest. It's the longest of them all. Generally speaking, it has all the same elements that the other messages or the other addresses have, uh, even sharing some of the themes that we've already observed. But there's a little bit more to be said here to this specific congregation in comparison to the other places. There's more instruction, more time given to speak to them and about them. And that's somewhat interesting when you know a little bit about this church here in Thyatira. This congregation is actually smaller than the seven others. It's not as significant in the region that it's at as the other churches. And this matters. It's, it's interesting to note that, that more time is given to this insignificant congregation according to human standards because that tells us something about who God is and his care for the church. It tells us that Christ Jesus is concerned about all of his churches, his bride, wherever it is found, no matter the size and location of such churches. The size and location of the congregation don't impact his knowledge of us and his care for us. Because humanly speaking, like with conventional wisdom, we tend to think that a larger church in a more important place will be more important to the Lord. Humanly speaking, that's how we tend to think. And while it's true that bodies of Christ in those kind of situations may be able to do more. I need to sneeze. Excuse me. Hold on. Why'd you do that? You just ruined it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, this is all recorded. So anyways, I, I am not able to stop. I don't have it with me. So anyways, um, a church that we tend to think, humanly speaking, that a church in a more important place, a bigger city with bigger people is going to be more important to the Lord. But that's a human way of thinking that would not be consistent with what we see in God's word. A church in those kind of situations may be able to do more and reach more, but it doesn't mean that Christ is more concerned with them and less concerned with these churches that are off in smaller places and that aren't as big. The, the size and the ability to do ministry don't determine value for the Lord. You might even think of what is said in Deuteronomy back in Deuteronomy 7, in which Yahweh tells Israel that he chose them not because they were bigger or better than the surrounding nations. In fact, they were fewer than the other nations. And yet he still chose them. His chesed, his covenant love was put upon them. And that covenant love that God had for Israel was a type of the covenant love that he has for the church. And even in Israel, the nation, back when God set them apart, as we read in Genesis through Deuteronomy especially, uh, they were certainly some among them that were saved in the same manner that we are today. There's only ever been one way in which anyone has saved. That's through faith in Christ. Uh, and it's through grace given to us by God because of the work that Jesus would do, either the work that Jesus did in the past if we lived after the cross or the work that Jesus would do in the future if you lived um, before Jesus went to the cross. And so people within the nation of Israel, uh, some of them certainly knew that exact same kind of love that we in the church know today, that, that covenant love that he has for his church. And this love is given to his church in every age. Now, regardless of the size and potential and potential cultural impact it can make, just because a church may not be very large or just because a church may not have the potential to impact the culture in a, in a very significant and large way 
doesn't mean that it is not well known and well loved by God. Small by our, our standards isn't automatically bad or blessed in the eyes of God. A small church can bring just as much glory or even more glory to God than a church that is 10 times its size. And so a true church that is perhaps not in the best location, humanly speaking, and one that isn't as large as others, even within a region of similar churches, is loved and known and cared for by the Lord with the same intensity and perfection as the others, even as ones that seem better according to human wisdom. And so we see that in this message to Thyatira. The city that it's in is located not on the coast this time. It's located about it's located in Wordland, about fifty miles southeast of where Pergamum was. And it's a military outpost. It doesn't have any of like the the major temples that we've seen in the other uh, cities that have major temples and major not that these temples were good, mind you anyway, these were temples to pagan deities to greet gods. God wasn't pleased with those temples, but usually at the places where the temples were, there was a lot of people and interaction and things going on that didn't really exist at that same level in Thyatira. It was um, it lacked the beauty and the stability of the previous mentioned cities. It was actually like a military outpost, and so it was located in this valley. And if you wanted to attack Pergamum, Pergamum was the capital of the area, you'd have to pass through where Thyatira is. And because of the nature of how this city was, it was smaller, it was had a lot of travelers coming through, it ended up having um, some unique things about it. And the way that Thyatira was kind of described, it sounds like one of those places that you just pass through on your way to somewhere more important. So basically like the whole state of New Mexico, if you were to think of it like that in California. Wow. Sorry, any New Mexicans. Yes. I, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, but of course, and just like New Mexico, there are people who live there and there's churches there where you know people want to glorify the Lord and seek the Lord. And this city, specifically in Thyatira, it became known for its guilds, uh, for its commerce. And these different trade guilds or labor unions would dominate life in the city. And so like every major trade guild had representation in Thyatira at this time. So you had like the, the woodworking guild, the metalworking guild, the, uh, the linen guild, the spice dyes, all these different guilds. If you play role-playing games, you know, a guild might be something familiar sounding to you, but they had these trade guilds there. And you might even remember one of the people who lived here, there's only one person actually mentioned in the Bible. In Acts 16, we read of a lady who was appointed to salvation by the name of Lydia. She was a seller of purple from Thyatira. And so she was part of, you know, one of these guilds, the 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 purple, you know, trader guild, I would guess you would say, there in Thyatira. She does. It was a uh, we don't need to get into that it's a side it's a side comment. But yes, she did sell things that are purple. Uh the the issue though is that these trade guilds engaged in more than just labor and craft. They were very religious and pagan in that. And that would, uh, extremely so, and that would lead to some problems for the saints in Thyatira. It would lead them to be confronted with the world and have that question, this question put before them. You know, will they allow certain practices to take place so they would fit in, or would they be a light to a dark world no matter what it costs them? That's, that's really the context of this letter to the church of Thyatira. It's a city that is 
not as glamorous as the other cities, but it's heavily impacted by these trade guilds. And these trade guilds are heavily steeped in pagan religious idolatry. And Christians are having to live as being part of these guilds, but will they tolerate the type of pagan religious festivals that the guilds are known for? And so let's consider what the text says. And right away we are confronted with something that is powerful, wonderful, and intriguing that can easily be skimmed over with a quick reading of it. We read in chapter, or excuse me, in chapter 2, I guess, verse 18, that it says, the words of the Son of God. That's how it starts. Of course, you know, we're familiar with that as Christians. We might not think a big deal of it, that Jesus is God's Son. Jesus is the one who has taken and assumed credit and responsibility for the words of this book. We read that back in chapter 1, and also at the start of every specific address to the specific congregations, which um, also would include, again, the whole rest of the book as well. But this is the first time that we read of an identifying mark concerning Jesus that we didn't find in chapter 1. Remember, chapter 1 gave us like this really vivid description of Jesus, of the Son of Man, who in his glory is described in, in all these ways that are very vivid, but they're not actually describing physical appearance or de- and physical truths. They're describing theological truths. Uh, not physical truths, but things that are theologic- theologically true about Jesus. So these specific addresses to the churches. The first three have begun like this. Uh, the words of him, and then a description found in chapter 1. Uh, 117. John is speaking and he says, When I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though dead, the him being Jesus. And so in the addresses to the church in Ephesus and Pergamum, we read the words of him and then some theological description that we read of in chapter 1. And then for the church in Smyrna, it just said, this is the words of the first and the last. It drops the him, but it says the words of the first and the last, which is one of those theological descriptions found in chapter 1. But here in Thyatira, it is the words of the Son of God. And this is the only time that we read that description. In fact, in the whole book of Revelation, this is the only time that Jesus is described as the Son of God. Of course, it's not the only time in all of Scripture, but it's the only time here in the Apocalypse. It's the only time it's used. And that should communicate to us that there is some special significance in saying it now. This is not a common theme in the book of Revelation. There's something that Jesus is wanting us to know and and he's communicating to us here and now. So the question for us then becomes, well, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? Jesus is the Son of God. Have you thought about that? Have you meditated upon really what that means? It's easy, I think, to just sort of let our religion exist like at a surface level. Bless you. But have you thought deeply about about what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God? And, and why then would he say that now when he's addressing this specific congregation in Thyatira? Well, in one sense, um, for Jesus to declare himself as the Son of God, we know what he means by that, that he is God. He's not lesser. He's not a created subordinate. He is true God. We get this from the gospel accounts as well. In John chapter 10, Jesus is declaring that he is from the Father and uniquely so in that regard. And the false teachers and the people who bought into the lies of the false teachers 
knew Jesus was implying this and didn't believe him. So if you look in John chapter 10, verse 33, and, and the, dis the discussion that Jesus gets into with the Pharisees and the people who believe the Pharisees' teaching is, is much longer than this. And so this is kind of the end of their conversation. But in John 10, 33, we read, The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So in one sense, it's clear that Jesus, in saying that he is the Son of God, what he's communicated here in Revelation chapter 2, is that he's simply saying that he is God. He is true God, not some lesser God, but Yahweh himself, the second person of the Son. These are the very words of the Son of God, of Almighty God. And it is a word then of absolute authority. This isn't an, there isn't an equal playing field relationship that we have going on here between Jesus and the church in Thyatira. This is a message from the one with absolute and final authority. So let me give you an example of this. I think you understand because you all have parents. Sometimes I'll say to my sons or daughters, like, can you throw this away for me? Or, you know, can you go unload the, the dishwasher? Now, I know, right? But now when I say that in the English, it sounds like a question. Like, can you go do this? But in reality, when a parent says something like that to their child, is it a question? Or you have, it's not a question, right? It, very good. <laughs> Sabrina was fast. It's not a question. I mean, you're being told to do something by someone who is a greater authority than you. And there may be some room to allow for you to be presently be busy and so you don't have to do the thing right then. But generally speaking, it needs to get done right then or soon thereafter. And well, again, because, because that's not how people should act. But we're dealing with someone here greater than just mere people. We're dealing with someone who is a greater authority than a parent. Uh, with Jesus, he's not just an authority. He's the absolute authority. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one the kings of the earth will all submit to. In Matthew 28, we read in the Great Commission that Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me or given to him. And so in this message, we need to take note of it. He's saying that he's the Son of God, establishing his absolute authority concerning the things that he's about to say to this, to this congregation here. And then right after that, we have the familiar descriptions from chapter 1. So it's the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. It's calling us back to Daniel chapter 10 as well. If you look back in Daniel chapter 10, maybe later you can see that there's a description of the Son of Man who is Jesus, and he's described in very similar fashion at that point. And... It's more than that as well. Um, just the other night, we were doing family worship in my house, and my daughter, Maisie, my second oldest daughter, she posed a question in light of the, the catechism question, which says, uh, can God do all things? And so she asked, uh, can he have laser eyes? And the answer, of course, is, well, the answer, of course, is that God can do all of his holy will, and why would shooting lasers out of his eyes be part of his holy will? But, <laughs> but I did tell her that Revelation speaks of his eyes being like a flame of fire. 
and the result isn't that much different. Uh, his eyes cut through everything. There is nothing hidden from the gaze of Jesus Christ. He, every The false teacher that we read about here in our passage, this Jezebel, he knows what is going on with this teacher. He knows how the church is responding and tolerating this foolishness. He sees it. His eyes are a flame of fire. Christ's perception is perfect. He sees thoughts, intentions, emotions, actions. He sees all of it. Plus, his feet are like burnished bronze. Well, why bronze? What does that mean? You might remember this consideration from chapter 1, but bronze is indicative of strength. I'm not sure if all of you will know this because it's not very popular today, or I didn't, I I didn't think it was until um, looking online, and apparently this is making a comeback. But um, my wife and I never did this, for example. But maybe you've seen this before. Sometimes parents, uh, it's kind of weird if you think about it too much, I guess. But anyways, sometimes parents will take their baby's first pair of shoes and dip it in bronze. And you guys have that, don't you? The graves have that. No? Okay. Have, has anybody ever seen that before? You values her. Okay. So that's not surprising. Um, it, it's not po- like my parents. So my grandparents did it to my parents' baby shoes, but my parents didn't do it to, to mine. It's not something that you do anymore. You put them on display, I guess, or you pass them, you pass them on as a keepsake sort of a thing. But it's not, it's not something you do today. Well, you bring up a good point, Henry. Uh, what good are they when they're coated in bronze? I mean, you can't wear them anymore. But what's the point of them? I'm so confused. Where do you go to buy molten bronze? Like, where do you get Kmart? They, Kmart's no longer around, so maybe. It's not, I think you, was, you must send it to some place that does it, a metal fabricator or something. Ask your dad. He probably knows metal fabricators, knowing your dad. So what becomes true of them when they're coated in bronze? It's stronger. It's stronger. Uh, they're not going to be destroyed unless you really, really put effort into it. They can endure things more powerful in a sense. There's a permanence about them. And those are the kinds of things that really we should be thinking about with Christ's authority here. There is a permanence and a trustworthiness associated with his power and authority. He has feet of bronze. We need to take note of this message. It should sober us up. It should catch our attention. Ian Paul in his commentary notes that it also contrasts Christ's good and holy authority, which is permanent, strong, and trustworthy, with that way of authority that is common to human power. And it's described in Daniel chapter 2. There we read of this human governance, and it's likened to a mixture of iron and clay feet. But not so with Jesus Christ, not so with the Son of God. His authority is pure, originating in himself and operated through the God-man with true power and trustworthiness. So the Son of God, this is the message from the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished, burnished bronze. And then in verse 19, we look at Christ's commendation toward the church. He encourages them first before he points out what he has against them. We talked about that last time. How that's a good model in if you are ever finding yourself and having to correct another Christian about an error that they are guilty of, a sin that they're committing. It's good and wise to also include something positive if there is something positive to say. And he says this is good about them. Um, 
there are these are the kinds of things that any church, that any individual who makes up a member of the church would want to be said of themselves, I would think, here in verse 19. And so Jesus says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. There's a lot of good there, a lot of real good, a lot of ways in which grace has strengthened and in and in, in, and oh my goodness, I can't even say my own words right now. Invigorated, invigorated the church to act. Uh, thank you. Yes, <laughs> it could be that he knows uh, these things and he's not pleased with the congregation, but that's not the case as it is with some congregations. But that's not the case here with Thyatira, uh, not in this verse at least. He's praising and delighting in them at this point, and he's doing so for their works, for their good works. Remember. They aren't living in some place where it's like easy to be a Christian. They had a patient endurance about themselves, just like the congregation in Ephesus displayed. Just like how John proclaims that a patient endurance is true for all who bear the name of Christ back in, in Romans, or excuse me, Revelation 1.9. And Christians, all who desire to live godly, will suffer persecution at some level or another. And that hasn't missed this tiny congregation here in Thyatira. They have, are having to patiently endure, and through that patient endurance, they have works of love and faith and service, ministry both to the body of Christ and ministry to the community around them and calling people to repent from their sin and to put their trust in Christ and to trust in Christ and to receive Jesus as Lord, and Jesus esteems them for this. We should all want that as well. Could the same be said of our choices? something to think about you know would would jesus say to you i am happy with the way with your works with your love with your faith with your patient endurance and if the answer is yes then praise god because his works of grace and mercy are bearing fruit in our lives to him be the glory if that's the case and if not then we have the opportunity to repent and seek to glorify the lord more on that uh, next not next week, but the week after that. But this is especially good. They are growing. They aren't stagnant or lukewarm, like the congregation in Laodicea. They aren't apathetic. Their latter works exceed the first works. The process of sanctification is bearing fruit here in this congregation. They are being more conformed to Christ. The, the Baptist Catechism describes sanctification this way. So sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. So when the overall speaking, generally speaking, this congregation at Thyatira, they are growing. They're not, they're not just being complacent in their Christian lives. They're not going backwards in their sanctification. They are, they are going forward. They are becoming more conformed to Christ. They are dying to self more, generally speaking. They're moving in the right direction. They're by and large doing the right kinds of things that a church should do, considering love, faith, and service. But, and that's how verse 20 starts, there is room for more sanctification, more room for growth, and specifically, a very dangerous sin that needs to be addressed. So look at verse 20. Let's see what it says. Verse 20 says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess 
and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. It's interesting. This little congregation here in Thyatira seems to be the opposite of the very large congregation in Ephesus. Uh, in Ephesus, the church was praised for having doctrinal precision. They, they tested those who called themselves apostles. They hated the works of the Nicolaitans. The church in Ephesus had a strong emphasis on doctrinal precision, on being theologically correct, but they lacked a gospel-based charity and love. Here in Thyatira, they have the love, they're growing in it, but at the expense of having doctrinal standards. Joel Bickey says that in Thyatira, proper instruction and head knowledge was being neglected. Uh, they were all heart and hands, but no head or mind. And we're told by Jesus himself to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You can't just have one aspect. You can't just have half the equation. The Christian has both or is striving you know, to have both. We can't just have some and assume the other parts and let them be neglected. When Christ Jesus works salvation truly in an individual, it is complete and robust and changes the whole man. Not instantly, but over time. And it's the very warnings in Scripture like this that urge us to put to death sin in our lives and repent and be more conformed to Jesus when we see that we're failing in some regard in this way. Uh, Thyatira seems to be guilty of the modern mantra that you may hear today. Maybe some of you have heard this, maybe not. But sometimes people like to say, deeds, not creeds. And you understand where a phrase like that might come from. I hope probably a good motive, uh, you know, probably out of a motive to, to do good and to help others. The Ephesus church seemed to be more focused on creeds with a lack of deeds. Creed being a, a statement about God, a statement about what the Bible says. But honestly, it's a false dichotomy. The notion of deeds and, and not creeds is a false dichotomy. You know, creeds, again, being knowledge and doctrine. Deeds being acts of love. Why not both? We need both. First John 3, Jesus, uh, not Jesus, but John, commends his readers with that even, telling them, let us not love in word and talk only, but also in deed and truth. It's similar also to the popular phrase you've heard today. If you've never heard deeds, not creeds, you've probably heard this one. Um, I, I don't have a religion. I have a relationship. Probably heard that. Or Christianity is a relationship and not a religion. Again, I think these people mean well, but they're making a false dichotomy. When people think that is true, that Christianity is a relationship and not a religion, they're making the same kind of error that the, Thi uh, the Thyatirians are making. Yes, Christianity is a relationship, but it is also a religion. There are specific doctrines and theology that can't be compromised, that can't be tolerated, and if it does, then you no longer have Christianity. You have a relationship with someone other than the one true God. We need to have both in view. And Christ Jesus has it against this church in Thyatira that they are tolerating false teaching among them. Specifically, they are tolerating that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality to eat food sacrificed to idols. The two same things mentioned in Pergamum, actually, but this time it's associated with Jezebel rather than uh, Balaam or the Nicolaitans. 
Jezebel should bring us back to the Old Testament, right? Remember who she is, hopefully through Sunday school. We've been going through the whole Bible for years now, just finally taking a break from that to do systematic theology. But Jezebel, if you remember, she was the wife of King Ahab, and she led him to worship false gods and to make idols. She led him to be covetousness and to steal. And she's the one who orchestrated the persecution of Elijah. Uh, Elijah, when he was wanting to hide himself, was because he was afraid of what Jezebel would end up uh, doing to him. And she had that violent death where she was, you know, eaten by dogs after she fell out of that tower. Never in all of Scripture is Jezebel a good thing or a person to be sought after. Uh, in this church, Thyatira here is, in a sense, a Jezebel church. Some in the congregation can be viewed like that, at least. Uh, listen to what Second Kings 9.22 says. It says, And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? So we're supposed to be thinking of the sins in Thyatira are some way reminding us of the same types of sins and evil that Jezebel in the Old Testament were guilty of. And being influenced by a Jezebel here is not a good thing. Danny Aiken in his commentary quotes something that, that I'm going to share uh, for one of you specifically. See if you can guess who. I don't know where he quotes it from, but he acts as it like it's a well-known phrase. Even uh, Hendrickson in his commentary quotes part of it, but this is how it goes. He says, we name our sons David and Paul and our daughters Mary and Rachel. We name our dogs Goliath and Nero, and we name our cats Jezebel. You guessed it, right? I don't know why. Who do you, who do I think, who do you think I shared that for? Yes. Um, uh, it's a supposed to some famous phrase, you know, but the thing is to make fun of cat owners and cats. Jezebel's, Jezebel's mentioning here. <laughs> I thought it, I chuckled a little bit when I read it. Um, Jezebel's mentioning here is certainly not a good thing. I mean, we could tell that from the specific context that he's saying here to Ephatera, plus what we know about Jezebel from the Old Testament, right? This is a really bad development that has happened. And there's some debate uh, concerning the mention of Jezebel, though. Basically, you know, is there a single person in view, or is this just a way of speaking about false teaching and the result that comes from it? Kind of like, how it was done in Pergamum with the talk speaking about Balaam uh, or Balaam. And then there's even debate about who this Jezebel may be. If, 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 since if she is just a singular person, is it a woman? Is it a man? Or do they say woman Jezebel here? Because they're wanting us to think of the issue back in um, Old Testament Israel in second Kings and in first Kings. Uh, some even suggest that this person Jezebel is, was the pastor's wife. Uh, the pastor of the church of Thyatira, and that's kind of led to the reason why as her teaching was so influential. It's hard to say for sure. It does seem clear that this is a single person that is causing the problem here in the church, though. Most likely, her real name isn't Jezebel. Jezebel is being, she's, this person is being called Jezebel, whether it's a woman or a man, because of the things we know about Jezebel from the Old Testament. But it's hard to say who this person is specifically. And maybe it's the pastor himself. Maybe it's just an influential person in the church. Or maybe someone outside the church that is claiming to have prophetic powers and is leading the congregants away. It's hard to say. What's easy to, to point out, though, is the sin. Jezebel has deceived. She's, she's enticed and seduced some people in the congregation to live in a way that's contrary to the Lord. Just like the Jezebel of old did 
And the church of Thyatira was tolerating this to happen. We'll get into the specifics next time. They were allowing it. They were allowing it. They were permitting it to take place. And this leads to a number of questions, and we'll close with this, and we'll finish the passage um, next time. How does a thing like this happen? How can a single person infiltrate the church and then lead it on a path of destruction? It can happen. I mean, this makes that clear. One person can affect the health of a church. Satan can send his emissaries into the church, as G.K. Beale notes. Where are the elders during all of this thing? Where is church discipline at a, in all of this? Where are the deacons at in all of this? What can a church do to ensure something like this doesn't happen? I mean, we can't override God's sovereign plans, of course, but what should a church do to guard against this kind of thing? Well, for one, we mustn't forget that doctrine matters, friends. We can't make the mistake that some do when they say Christianity is a relationship and not a religion. That we must be clear about. That the church is not just deeds without creeds, it's both. Creeds and confessions unite rather than divide. They unite around the truth. You don't want to be united around falsehood. That's nothing to be united around. If we are Christ's people, then we are united to Christ, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There needs to be an ever-present pursuit of the truth because Jesus is the truth. And be sure of this, the world is doing the exact same thing. The world is doing the exact same thing, but what it calls truth is not truth. What it calls truth is not what God says is true. There is idolatry rampant in the world, and one of Satan's ploys and attacks against the church is to get the church to think that it can be like the world. That's what's going on here in Thyatira. And the church over the years has something now that the church at John's time didn't have. It didn't have it at the same extent that we do today. We have a history of creeds and confessions that were developed in light of false teaching creeping into the church. Now, there were creedal statements in the, in the New Testament. There's, I think, seven of them. We don't have time to look at all of them right now, but there are statements that seem to be creedal, easily memorizable and recitable things that would declare gospel truth that Christians all shared and knew about. But it's not wise um, to disregard how God has used saints in the past. And we can be greatly benefited by using and taking advantage of these old creeds and catechisms by studying in depth the confessions, especially those that came after the Reformation, and then subscribing to them. So subscribing to them means that you can, with a clear and good conscience, say, well, this is a summary of the Bible's teaching on this topic that I agree with. Because all kinds of people have believed all kinds of different things about the Bible, right? Some good, some bad. And these confessions or creeds or statements of faith, they have been looked at and they've been considered by many people over the, over the years who have the same spirit as you do if you have the spirit of Christ living within you. And so then it becomes a means as to helping guard you and defend you from false teaching. Uh, because in doing so, by God's grace, God will guard us and persevere us, just like he has been doing for his church over throughout the ages. I mean, for those of you who are Christians here tonight, have you considered, you know, like the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith in depth and considered what it affirms and what it rejects? Or maybe, you know, even the official, not my desire, and hopefully we transition to it soon and have the Second London Confession be our confession here at this congregation, but have you considered the, our official local church confession of faith, the Baptist Faith of Mass 2000? 
uh, if you are a member at this church, that is, in a sense, your confession of faith as well. Have you went through these or any of the other ones that exist that have been drafted and based on a study of Scripture over the centuries? These things exist as a tool to guard against heresy. They are like guardrails, preventing us from going out of bounds. Like if you have creeds and confessions alongside of you and you're in between them, they keep you from going outside out of bounds, going out into apostasy. To guard, they guard against false teaching. By God's grace, they can prevent something like what happened here at Thyatira from happening at our church. You know, if someone comes to the church and they start teaching something that is clearly in contradiction to the confessional and creedal standard you have, that's a warning to you then, wouldn't it be? It should alarm you so that you can then know to take what this person says and compare it to what this man or this woman says and bring it back to the word of God since it's out of step with what your confession says and teaches. And since the confession is based on scripture as well, the creeds, the confessions, they're based on what scripture says. So they're, they're tools, they're helpful tools to us. And friends, this isn't something that we do to earn our salvation or, preser- or pers- preserve it. It's something that we do out of the well of love that God has poured into us in saving us. That we are concerned now when we are saved for the truth. We are, we, we are concerned for the truth. We don't want to tolerate error. Jesus was the one who lived a sinless life. He's the one who went to the cross to pay the penalty that we deserve because it is true that sin deserves to be punished. But how many professing Christian churches today want to make light of sin? Now, that's exactly what I think is the problem here in Thyatira. Again, we'll deal with that next time. But a confession of faith, having doctrinal standards, helps you to be guarded against that. Uh, Jesus was the one who bore wrath and earned justification for us. And because he's done that, we care for the truth. We have a desire to defend it, not to let error give itself over in our lives to death because of what Jesus truthfully did for us. Everything um, that is contained in the gospel, you know, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, for those chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So how can something like this in Thyatira not happen here? Well, it, it, we can't be just about love. We also have to be about doctrinal standards as well, too. They Love and truth work hand in hand for the Christian and every individual congregation as well, too. So that's, um, next time we'll take into consideration the church's tendency to tolerate sin and false teaching and specifically how that played out in Thyatira, and then we'll deal with Christ's uh, considerations for it there. But let's pray. If you have any questions, we can do that too. Our Father in heaven, uh, we are grateful to you for the sufficiency of your word, how it is profitable for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be people who are not just simply known for love, but also people who are known for truth at the same time as well. We understand, Lord God, that truth separated from love or love separated from truth is not truly love or truth. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful to you in every possible way, but we know that we don't have strength to do it in ourselves. So we pray for grace. We plead that you would give us mercy and help us to be all the more sanctified and conform to Christ, all for your glory's sake, and that your will would be done. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, any questions so far?
Again, we'll deal with the second half of the text in two weeks.